The Heat will let it play out. It's over. At last, the long wait is over. After 47 years, the Denver Nuggets can finally call themselves NBA champions. This week, champs were crowned. Sports betting is coming to another state, and the A's appear to be on their way out. It's Friday, June 16th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. We have an MLB legend coming on in the back half of the episode. But first, let's take a look back at this week. We saw new champions crowned in the NBA and NHL. Both teams ousting a team from Florida in five games to win their first title in franchise history. The NBA playoffs as a whole had a five-year high in ratings, but the finals were the lowest-rated NBA finals outside of COVID-affected years since 2007. In the NHL, it was a similar story. This was the second least-watched finals in 30 years outside of the COVID years. The Stanley Cup finals were down 43% from last year with an average viewership of 2.6 million. Comparing last year to this year is sort of apples to oranges because this year the finals was only on cable networks, Turner's TNT and True TV. Looking elsewhere, North Carolina legalized sports betting. They will allow betting on mobile devices online and in person. People can't quite place bets yet. First, the Lottery Commission has to set up regulations and pick a start date, which will be within 12 months. With the U.S. Open kicking off yesterday, a few top golfers had their eyes overseas. Justin Thomas, Jordan Spieth, and Ricky Fowler are pursuing partial ownership in Leeds United after 49ers Enterprises, the NFL team's investment arm, agreed to take full ownership of the team. And now to the Oakland A's. This week, the Nevada Senate and Assembly added amendments to the bill to provide funding for an A's stadium on the Las Vegas Strip and then passed the bill on to Governor Joe Lombardo, who is expected to sign it. Some of the amendments relate to the stadium and others simply add in legislation from other bills that Lombardo previously vetoed. There are still forks in the road that could lead to the A's not moving, but the team and the league and the relevant local governments are all in alignment now on the team moving to a new stadium in Las Vegas in 2028. The team's lease in Oakland only runs through 2024, so there is a three-year gap that they will have to figure out. They were close to a deal in Oakland on a project that would have created not just a stadium, but a whole neighborhood. And there's been a lot of speculation that the team couldn't actually afford what they are proposing in Oakland. Tim Kawakami at The Athletic heard that part of what made them turn away was that A's owner John Fisher wanted to do the entire development in Oakland at once so that he could work with other developers on the housing and retail and everything else that was going in there, and all of that would pay for the stadium. But at some point, the math stopped working and they shipped it to Vegas. That seems credible, especially as construction costs have risen over the last few years. We probably won't have a definitive answer. A's owner John Fisher basically never talks to the media, and even if he did, it's hard to say if we could take him at his word. The people that are speaking on the A's behalf, and look, I get this is what they are incentivized to do, but they are lying. The projections that the A's told to Nevada, some of which were quoted as fact by Nevada senators as they were voting for the bill, are just absurdly inflated. For instance, they estimate that the Las Vegas A's will draw 7,000 tourists per game for 10 years. So a Wednesday night game against the Kansas City Royals in June 2033, 7,000 tourists. The Arizona Diamondbacks swinging by Vegas in April of 2029. The A's say they will draw 7,000 tourists each game. Where are they getting that number? Very few people making decisions seemed curious about that. 
Another person who is getting his salary paid by A's owner John Fisher and the 29 other ownership groups who is lying on Fisher's behalf is MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred. On Thursday, Manfred held a press conference where he said, quote, The real question is, what is it Oakland was prepared to do? There is no Oakland offer, okay? They never got to a point where they had a plan to build a stadium at any site. The Oakland mayor's office responded very quickly with this statement, this is just totally false. There was a very concrete proposal under discussion and Oakland had gone above and beyond to clear hurdles, including securing funding for infrastructure, providing an environmental review, and working with other agencies to finalize approvals. The reality is that Oakland ownership insisted on a multi-billion dollar 55-acre project that included a ballpark, residential, commercial, and retail space. In Las Vegas, for whatever reason, they seemed satisfied with a nine-acre leased ballpark on leased land. If they had proposed a similar project in Oakland, we feel confident a new ballpark would already be under construction, end quote. But I want to shift from talking about why this is happening to what is happening. What is happening is the end of a baseball team. When the A's move, there will be, still be a team called the A's that will have all the same minor league teams and whatever front office and players they have when they leave. But a team is not its management. It's in a way, not even its players. A team is what I saw on Tuesday night at the Oakland Coliseum. That was the reverse boycott game. You probably heard about this, maybe from me. Oakland fans got tired of hearing that the lack of fans was the reason that the team had to move. It wasn't the management that sold off all their good players at an unnecessary discount, never extended a great player or made any significant moves in free agency, never invested in their stadium, and didn't even want to pay for any of the community benefits program they hashed out with the city. It wasn't all of that. It's just that the fans weren't showing up. A's fans got sick of hearing that, so they did something about it. On June 13th, they showed up to say, we're here. We'll buy tickets and food and drinks and merch. We'll cheer and bang drums and play vuvuzelas. We'll be the best fans in baseball if ownership just puts a fraction of that commitment into the team. And they did. More than 20,000 people showed up on Tuesday. I was one of them. And it was honestly one of the most powerful things I've seen at any sporting event. There were chants of sell the team and stay in Oakland. But people were also fully engaged with the actual game. They went crazy when the A's scored and they booed really loudly when a call got overturned against the A's. But the moment that will stay with me for a really long time is the silent protests and what happened immediately after. I have been in loud stadiums and arenas, I'm sure you have too. But that chant, coming out of the quiet with all the frustration of how hard it has been to love this team, it felt like the loudest crowd I've ever been in. In fact, it was loud enough that A's pitcher Hogan Harris thought his pitchcom was broken because he couldn't hear anything through it. I've been inundated by commentary on this whole thing over the last few weeks, but one sentiment that really resonated with me was what makes the A's fans so wonderful is that they come from such a wide swath of cultures and backgrounds, but they came together to create their own culture built around the team. That's one of the great redeeming things about sports, is that it pulls people from different backgrounds, ideologies, belief systems, and unites them. Oakland has that as much as any team I've gotten to know, and that will end the day that they leave town. Will something like it start anew in Vegas? I, I don't know, but they won't carry those 55 years of history with them. And for what? Well, there is no shortage of opinions on that, but I think this guy, who is tailgating at the reverse boycott game, I think he nailed it. It is this team, the, co the community loves the team. There's a market for this team, undoubtedly, without a doubt. It has just been ownership has done nothing but try to play the asset appreciation game and make money and hold the asset. And they've done well at that. He bought this team for $175 million. There's no way he sells it for less than $1.5. 10x in 20 years. Great business move, John. I don't know if Fisher is going to sell. 
But if you were going to, why sell a fixer when you can have a shiny new Las Vegas stadium built or at least in the works? We know that John Fisher doesn't invest in his team or his fan base. He's just playing the value game. And he might be the only one in all of this who comes out a winner. Thanks for hearing me out on all this. Up next, we have MLB Hall of Famer Ken Griffey Jr. He's one of the best to ever play the game, and I believe the only player to ever play on the same team as his dad. Happy early Father's Day to all the dads out there. We'll have that conversation next. All right, very excited to be joined now by former MVP, 13-time All-Star, MLB Hall of Famer, and one of the best athletes I've ever seen live, Ken Griffey Jr., welcome to the show. Hey, how are you? Doing great, great to have you. So I wanna start with the World Baseball Classic. You were the hitting coach for the US team, and at one point you took batting practice, and you know everyone took out their <laughs> phones, uh, and you can still hit. So do you still get in the cage sometimes? Uh, what's funny is I haven't been in a cage for like seven years prior to that. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, they, Mookie and, and Trout and Nolan all, you know, got me to get in there and they said, you know, we really want to see it. Not like I said, no. And then finally I was like, all right. So that's impressive for yeah, six or seven years off to, you still got the swing. Uh, what was that experience like coaching the team at the WBC? It was good. It was a lot of fun. I mean, the, the guys, I mean, baseball's in good hands with these guys. I mean, the guys that are there, uh, represent baseball in, in the, the direction that it, it needs to go. Yeah. And, and what do you mean by that exactly? What what direction does baseball need to go? Well, just, you know, with the World Baseball Classic, everybody, uh, every nationality, everybody's out there performing. Um, and when you have good guys, and, and that's what I mean, good guys who are who recognize what they have to do on and off the field, um, you know, it makes it easier for the the younger generation to watch. And, and, and that's what you try to do is get the younger kids to watch and appreciate uh, and try to get them to understand that this could be them. And, you know, they have good role models for, for the younger kids to watch. Is there anyone in particular you feel is, is there just a really good example of someone who's, you know, one of the faces of baseball right now, who's carrying that torch? Well, I mean, that whole team is, is there's not just one. I mean, it's the a whole team. I mean, those guys really embody, you know, what baseball is about. I mean, they cared about each other, even though they were on different teams, you know, uh, an hour after it ended, you know, these guys were, were for the two weeks we were together, were one solid group, went out to eat together, hung out, made sure everybody was where they need to be. Uh, it, it was really impressive to see, you know, these guys, you know, become a team in two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And it really felt like it was a team. All of those teams felt like so united and so into that tournament. Um, switching gears a little, in 2021, you became a senior advisor for MLB. Uh, tell me about the work you're doing there. Well, just trying to get younger kids to, to play baseball, um, inner city kids. And, and when you talk about inner city kids, um, MLB, MLBPA, uh, the YDF, um, I mean, it, it's a collective group that gets together and, and we try to take control of some issues that need to be addressed. One is trying to get underserved kids to to get to be able to play the game that they love, and that's baseball. And, and it's tough sometimes, but you know it's worth it because one kid could turn into you know fifty, and fifty kids could turn into you know five thousand. But we've got to start somewhere, and uh, the little process that uh, um, we've made 
so far. Um, we can see the the kids and the smiles when they come to the ballpark. I mean, we do this thing in Vero, and there's 300 kids um, ranging from 12 to, to 17. And all these kids are underserved kids who can't get into major tournaments that want to be seen. And that's what we, we're, we're trying to do. We're trying to get the, the kids that want to be seen, seen, um, so they can go out there and play this great game of baseball. Yeah, and I saw that you're part of a group heading up what's called the, the HBCU Swingman Classic. So it's like sort of like an all-star game for, for kids from Division One HBCUs. Uh, so if you, uh, what's, um, what's the initiative there? What, what's kind of the, the driving force there? Again, you know, kids that want to be seen playing, playing baseball. Not everybody's going to be a big league ball player, but you can see um, some of the things that are behind the scenes, you know, work in the front office, you know, whether that's scouting, uh, uh, the media part, the social media part, the, you can still be around the game of baseball if you choose to be, even, even though you may not be able to play it at a, a, high, a higher level. Um, just giving kids opportunities to, to be around the game that they love. I think that's the, the, the most important thing is giving them an opportunity to be seen, heard, um, so they can make adjustments uh, in life. So you're doing this film with Budweiser about playing with their dad. Your dad, you played two together at the start of your career, end of his. What was it like coming into the league with your dad on the same team? Well, coming to the league, he was with Cincinnati. I was with uh, Seattle. At the end of my second year, he was he was uh, a Mariner. So it was it was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I could still grow as a as a player with not having you know a dad sitting there you know, being dad sometimes. Uh, but when he got to the team, it was, hey, this is your team. I'm happy to be here. Uh, and he was a teammate. I mean, he was still dad, but it wasn't until we got home where he was, you know, hey, you know, I've done this. Think about this. And and he really helped me. I, I learned more about being a professional and being a professional hitter when he was with me than I did, you know, actually living in his house because it was, you know, that's just dad. That's just dad. Now you look at it going, that's dad who's done it. Um, and now I want to do it. So I got to look at things a little differently. And so it was more of an adjustment on my part, not so much his. His was, you know, hey, you're my son. Go out there and play and go have some fun and I'm going to enjoy it. He finally, you know, after he retired, he said the, the most fun I've ever had is sitting there playing with you. Yeah, I mean that that's got to be. I mean, there's very few people who could who've had had anything like that. I was trying to think, like I don't think the Bonds has ever played together. So yeah, it's it's a special thing. You know, it's a special opportunity you got. Uh, but so once when you're in the dugout together, you were just did it feel like you were just teammates, or was some? It has to be some part of your brain that was always like, well, that's my dad no, sitting he, right over he there. Was able to separate being dad um, from being you know teammate. Um, I will tell you the first time he got up to the plate, I go get a hit, dad, and everybody on the bench start laughing. Um, because, you know, as you get older, there are certain names that you get called. Fossil, old man, uh, gray beard. You know, you get called those names, pops. And um, <clears throat> I actually was the first player to ever say it and mean it. Yeah. And um, if you could speak to the, the documentary part of this, um, is w w what kind of like you know, topics, issues, explorations, does that get into? 
Well, it's just how when you when you get into a film, uh, you know, being a part of the this Bud series, um, it talks about what family what family means. It's going back to the basics of you know being around family, being being able to sit and, and have uh, a meal with your 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 loved ones. I mean, you know, my dad was he was gone playing baseball, then I was gone, so. We really didn't have like a Fourth of July uh, or a Father's Day, and more importantly, a Father's Day um, until after we both retired. Then it was like, okay, who's cooking? And so I got that duty because uh, me being the, the younger guy, uh, he got to sit in the in the, the AC while I was out there sweating bullets while the kids were in the pool. But it was one of those things that it was a moment that you know I wish all families could be a part of is being out in the backyard, you know, cooking, uh, where you have three generations of, of family members just sitting there enjoying. All right. Just before we wrap up, we're going to do a quick lightning round here. So these will be a bunch of quick questions, some about sports, some not. Uh, first of all, uh, what do you have for breakfast? What do I have for breakfast? Ooh, I had a piece of toast. Um, if for some reason, going back, you, you had decided not to play baseball, but you still wanted to be an athlete, what sport would you have chosen? Football. Uh, what kind of music do you listen to these days? I listen to everything. It is quite strange in our house because we are a family that, you know, we go from rap to hip hop to R&B to country. Uh, so it's it's been all over the map. Um, the pandemic has really opened our eyes to a lot of things. Uh, what's one of your favorite individual moments from your playing career? A favorite individual moment? It'd probably be playing with my dad. Yeah, I guess it's hard to beat that, huh? How about a, a park that you like to play in where you are not the home team? As much as I hate to say it, it'd probably be Yankee Stadium. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just because I like to beat up on the Yankees. All right. Uh, last one. Uh, favorite player to watch right now? Other than the Seattle Mariners group, I would have to say Trout, Otani, Betts, Acuna, uh, Tim Anderson, and I can't think of uh, and and one more that that I'm starting to to the young center fielder for the A's who can steal a whole lot of bases. Yeah, Estuary Ruiz, I think. Yeah, yeah, he's he's dynamic. All right, Ken Griffey Jr., thank you so much for joining us on the show. No problem. Thank you. That's it for today. We are off on Monday for Juneteenth, but we have some big names coming up when we return. Subscribe so you don't miss any of them. Thanks for listening. We will see you Tuesday.